Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you. Glad to have the opportunity to speak with you this morning. Um, I think the last time that I uh, spoke here was in uh, April or May. And today you're going to get part two of that lesson. So I hope you remember everything that I talked about back then. Um, uh, but we are going to actually do a little bit of review of a couple of the highlights from that lesson because they are important as we uh, look at the lesson here today. I don't know about you, but I feel like I live in a world that seems increasingly foreign to me. I would like to say it's because I'm becoming more and more less like the world. But in all honesty, I think the world is becoming more and more less like me. Um, the world is changing, and it always has been changing, but it just feels like it's changing more rapidly in our times. And so today I'm going to look at a lesson that I think will help us as we look at the uh, world that we are living in, uh, that we're a part of, and how do we separate ourselves from it and at the same time have influence upon it. So that's what we're going to be thinking about as we go through our lesson this morning. Uh, the lesson that I referred to a few moments ago was from the life of Jacob. And you may recall, uh, we looked at the life of Jacob, and particularly we started uh, with his uh, uh, disagreement and his uh, uh, deceit uh, of his father Isaac, and it, which resulted in him receiving a blessing from his father Isaac, which should have gone to his brother Esau. As a result of this deceit, and the receiving of this blessing that really he wasn't entitled to by birth, uh, Esau decided to kill him. And so in the middle parts of chapter 27, uh, Esau says, and when the days of mourning of our father Isaac, because Isaac was believed to be dying, which he wasn't, he says, when we're through mourning our father, I'm going to come kill you. Well, Rachel, who, was, uh, lo who loved Jacob, uh, heard of this, and she says, we're going to get you out of here. We're going to send you uh, to Padan Aram, uh, which is a region uh, north of Palestine, as we think of Palestine. If we were looking on a map, and, you know, Mesopotamia is over here, and then here's Padan Aram and Haran, which is where uh, Abraham originally left Mesopotamia, Ur, to go to Haran. He says, she says, I'm going to send you there to my family, and you can hide out there for a few days until Esau's anger is subsided. What's also interesting, if you'll turn over to chapter 28 of Genesis, what's also interesting is there was another part, aspect of sending him to Padan Aram, and that is that he might find a wife. At the end of chapter 27, Rebekah says to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Rachel there is referring to her daughters-in-law, uh, the wives of Esau. Esau had taken wives from among the Hittites, from among the Canaanites. And they have made Rachel's life miserable. And she goes, says to, to her husband Isaac, we can't let Jacob marry daughters of Canaan. And so Isaac speaks to Jacob again in verse, or, or chapter 28. He says, so Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife 
from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And may he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. So uh, Jacob is going to be sent to his uncle Laban, and there he is to find a wife among the people of their family. This isn't the first time this has happened. If you'll turn over to Genesis chapter 24, we find that Isaac had learned this lesson from his own life experiences and from the instructions of his father. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham, as an old man advanced in age, calls to him his head servant, the one who oversaw all of his all of his property and household, and if you recall, Abraham was a wealthy man. So this was an important person that he calls to him, and he makes him swear. He says, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. But you will go to my country, meaning go back to Haran. You will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? And Abraham said, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. So this interesting conversation, which has a great deal of bearing on the story we're going to be looking at today, Abraham says, go back to where I'm from, to my relatives, and find a wife for my son there, because I don't want my son to have a wife from among the daughters of Canaan, the people whom I live around. This is because Abraham knew the people of Canaan. He knew their wickedness. He knew of their debauchery. He knew that they worshiped foreign gods. And he says, don't find my son a wife from these people. And he says, and don't take him back there because where he is now is the land of promise. The Lord has told me that this land will belong to my descendants. So don't carry him away from the land, but go bring a wife to him here. And so that is the instructions, really, that, uh, that Isaac is giving to Jacob. Only this time he's not sending a servant because they have this dual purpose. He's sending the son and says, while you're there hiding from your brother, find a wife. Because I don't want you to take a wife from among the Canaanites. They're wicked people, and your mother will not be able to take it. So he leaves and he goes. And on his journey, he comes to a place and he rests for the night. It's rather haphazard that he ends up in this place. We're told that he stops there to spend the night because the sun went down. He didn't choose this place, but he's traveling and the sun is going down, it's getting night, he decides to camp for the night and he lays down and he finds a stone to rest his head upon. And while he is asleep that night, he, the Lord appears to him in a dream, and he sees a vision, and we 
often refer to this as Jacob's ladder, a ladder that is going from the earth into heaven and the angels are descending and ascending on this ladder and the Lord appears at the top of the ladder and says this to him, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Bruce referred in his... uh, Excellent talk a few moments ago to the promises that were given. And surely, receiving a promise like this, this promise of land, this promise of being a great nation, this promise that through your descendants, all nations, all families of the earth are going to be blessed, had to have been astonishing to him. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place And I didn't know it. He didn't know it. He stopped here because the sun was going down. But now he realizes that this is a place where God is. And he was afraid. He said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. The next morning he arose and he took the stone that he had slept on and he stood it up and he poured oil of it as a monument to this place. And he named the place Bethel, which in Hebrew means the house of God. And there he makes a vow to the Lord. And this is, again, important to our story. Jacob makes a vow in verse 20. If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So he makes this vow to the Lord based upon the promise. He's just had the promises made to his grandfather Abraham and again to his father Isaac. Jacob has received these promises and he is struck with awe. And he says, if you go with me on this journey, if you give me food and water, if you take me home safely, I vow that you'll be my God. And I suspect that when Isaac is taking this journey on, he's thinking like his mother. He's going to go there. He's going to lay low for a little while. Esau's anger will pass, and he'll come back home with a wife. But this journey lasts 20 years. A few days or a few weeks turn into 20 years of his life. And we're not going to go in detail through the rest of the story, but you'll recall how he goes and he meets Laban and he falls in love with Rachel, Laban's beautiful daughter, the younger of his two daughters. He falls in love and he says, what do I have to do that I might marry her? Because that was the way, that was the way that the world operated then. If you wanted to marry a girl, you paid a price. He says, what is the price that I would have to pay to take Rachel as my wife? And Laban says, you got to work for me for seven years. And he does. He works for seven years. Laban tricks him, gives him Leah, his oldest daughter. 
for his wife. He has to work another seven years that he might marry Rachel. So he marries both of Laban's daughters. He works for Laban during these years, and during this period of time, the relationship is not a happy one with Laban. Laban constantly changes his wages, cheats him, tries to keep him from prospering, because all this time, the Lord is prospering Jacob. The Lord is telling him what to do, how to do it, and he's becoming a wealthy man. After another six years of working for Laban, we're told in verse chapter 31 that Jacob heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father he has made all his wealth. And Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. And then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father's and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So after 20 years, the Lord says to Jacob, it's time to leave this place. It's time to go to the land that has been promised, to the land of your fathers, to the land where your relatives are waiting for you. It's time to go, and I will be with you. So Jacob explains to his wives who are from this land he, they, he explains to them everything that has been happening, how the Lord has blessed him, and now the Lord has said it's time to leave. And his two wives are supportive, and they say, do what the Lord has, has called you to do. Do whatever the Lord says. We're with you. We are with you. And in verse 19, it says, and as they are preparing to leave, it says, when Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. So as they're packing their things, Rachel goes into her father's house and takes his idols, the things that he worshipped, and hides them. They sleek out, unannounced, and Laban grabs his men and they chase after them, and for seven days they chase them and finally catch up to them. And Laban is understandably angry. He says, you took my wives and my grandchildren and I didn't even get to kiss them goodbye. Why have you done this? And moreover, he says, and while we're talking about it, someone took my idols. And Jacob, who doesn't know anything about this, says, look for him. I don't have your idols. And they look and they search, but Rachel had hit them well and they didn't find them. He and Laban come to an agreement. They strike a covenant where they won't harm one another, but they also just will avoid one another. And Jacob goes on his way. But now Jacob has another concern. Uh, and interesting, um, in Laban's anger, I don't want to overlook this, uh, the Lord appears to Laban and says, I know you're mad. I know you're going after him, but you better not harm him. Because God was fulfilling his promises. I will be with you. I will protect you. Well, the next uh, big episode, and this was really a big part of the subject of our previous lesson, was uh, Jacob's fear of Esau. The Lord has called him to go home. And now, he, after 20 years, he has to face his brother Esau. He doesn't know what's waiting for him. He's concerned. He's worried. And there we find, uh, as we looked at last time in chapter 32, Jacob finds himself 
on the night before his encounter with Esau, wrestling with God and clinging to God that he might receive the Lord's blessing and protection. This was a low point in Jacob's life. Perhaps it was the most he had ever been afraid. And so he turns to the God who had been with him constantly. And he basically says, don't, don't leave me now. I need you. And he holds on and pleads with God for a blessing. And of course, you know the story. They meet the following day, and Esau is happy to see him. Uh, tries to refuse these tremendous gifts that Jacob is giving him to help make amends. And he has to uh, persuade Esau to take these gifts. And Esau is happy to see him. He's glad, embraces him, and says, hey, I'll lead you. I'll lead you home to Seir where Esau lived in the land which would become the land of Edom. He says, follow me. And And Jacob says, no, we're tired. My cattle can't take a fast pace of travel right now. My children and servants can't handle a fast pace of travel right now. Let us linger back. We'll, we'll travel at our own pace. You go ahead. What's interesting is, is Esau goes to the south to the south to Seir, but Jacob turns and goes to the north, to Succoth. Little confusing as to how that happened. This is one of those passages, like chapter 34 that we're coming to, where I suspect that there is a lot more than what we're told going on. But Jacob ends up eventually, when we come to chapter 34 and verse 18, we're told that Jacob eventually ends up outside the city of Shechem. It says, now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, there's a lot in that verse that you can overlook, and I want to point this out to you. When he says, now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, I want to remind you of verse 21 of chapter 28. When Jacob makes his vow at Bethel, and he says, if you you go with me and you protect me, if you feed me and clothe me, and if you return me safely to the land of my father's, then you'll be my God. And so what Moses is telling us in this account in Genesis is that God fulfilled that promise. That request of Jacob that was in his vow, he says, now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Now what's interesting, both about Bethel and Shechem, if we were to look in Genesis chapter 12, very famous passage in the, in the Old Testament where uh, Abraham received the promises. Both Bethel and Shechem are mentioned as places where Abraham spent time, where Abraham had worshipped God. It's not clear whether or not Isaac is really even aware of this. He certainly wasn't aware of it about Bethel. And interesting, Bethel is called Bethel in Genesis chapter 12, but it wasn't called Bethel at the time Abraham was there. Jacob names it Bethel, and in hindsight, as the account is written, it's referred to by its known name uh, at a later time. But Jacob now finds himself in Shechem, a place where his grandfather, the great Abraham, had spent time. And it says that he bought a piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, 
for 100 pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and call it El Elohi Israel, that is God, the God of Israel. So true to his vow, now that he has returned safely to the land, he erects an altar that he might worship God and declares this place is a place of God there at Shechem. But now we come to Genesis 34. The life of Jacob, in many ways, is a troubled life. There's not much easy. When you read about the life of Jacob, there's just, there's not really, it's not a peaceful life. It's a troubled life. And of course, Jacob has brought much of that trouble upon himself time and time again. But I suspect that the events of chapter 34 might have been the most troubling. He has entered into dealings with Canaanites. He's bought land from them. He has decided to live just outside one of their major cities. He no doubt is having dealings with them. And then we come to chapter 34, and a chapter that's very ugly, and we're not going to spend as much time as I would like to. I really um, spent a lot of time looking at chapter 34. I, I'm not sure if I came away with more answers or more questions, but it's a fascinating chapter with a lot of layers that you could spend a great deal of time on, and we're, we're not going to do that. I may mention a couple of passages that I would recommend that you read if you're trying to understand this chapter. But I want to read the first seven verses, and then I'm just going to tell you the rest. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. Now, if you'll think what we just wrote, read at the end of chapter 33, uh, Hamor and Shechem are mentioned as the father and son from whom uh, Jacob buys this land. Now, in this narrative here in chapter 34, it says, When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and he lay with her by force. That's a troubling passage. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult passage, quite honestly, when you start looking at the language. And there is a mixture in this chapter of things maybe were not, details were not being provided. I, I could probably spend a quite great amount of time with what I think are some of the missing details that I think you can see here. We don't have time for that. But this is clearly a passage where we don't have every detail. It's also something that has to be understood in the context of the time and culture that is happening there. And in and in part, the culture here is the Canaanite culture. And what becomes really obvious, I think, in the scriptures is that it was the habit of the Canaanite that this is how they took their wives. They took them. And in this case, I don't know how much Dinah had interacted with Shechem or the people of Shechem, the daughters of Shechem. Uh, I suspect that it wasn't just she went out one day and this happened. But there is more going on here. But at some point, Shechem has fallen in love with Dinah, and he takes her. 
It says he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl, and he spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, said, get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were in, with the livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob come in from the field uh, when they heard it. And the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done this, great, this graceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to be done. What follows, and we're not going to take the time to go through all of this, but what follows is a negotiation. It's not a true negotiation. It's a deceitful negotiation on the part of the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Dinah. They seek revenge. While Shechem loves her, wants to marry her, after forcibly taking her, the brothers seek only revenge. And the negotiation goes back and forth, and Hamer says, you know, you give us your daughters to marry, and we'll give you our daughters to marry, and you can live here with us, and you can do trade, and you can buy land, and, and our people can become one people. And we, we, can just, yeah, we can do all these things. And the sons of Jacob say, well... That sounds all right, but there's a problem. It would be disgraceful for us, for our daughter, to marry a man who is uncircumcised. So if we're going to allow you to marry our sister, then you're, you're, the men of your city are going to have to be circumcised. And, Ham, and uh, Shechem, because he loved, uh, loved Dinah, agrees to this. And so he convinces the men of his city by saying, look, this is going to be good for us. Everything that they have will be ours. We should do this. And he persuades them to do it. And three days later, Simeon and Levi go into the city while all the men are on their bed in pain from their circumcision. And they kill every man of Shechem. Hamor, his son Shechem, all the men, they plunder the city. They take all the women and children away as a prize. Now, I do want to just cover this very quickly because I, I, I have something more important to say, and I don't want to run out of time. But if you want to understand this chapter a little bit, I recommend that you go read 2 Samuel chapter 13 and the episode of Amnon and Tamar. That chapter sheds a lot of light on how you ought to read this chapter. And also, later, when the law of Moses, of course, this is all prior to Moses' time, when the law comes out, there are laws prescribing remedies for precisely this set of circumstances. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 22. You can read the prescription, the remedy for this. And let me tell you, it's not the remedy that the sons of Jacob applied. Not making light of anything that has happened. In fact, what you notice most of all, as I look at this chapter, it is as a sordid tale in which there are no winners. What is also noticeably absent from 
Genesis chapter 34 is any mention of God. Other than the idea, the general idea that this is a thing that ought not be done, which is a reference to a righteous conscience. Conscious. There's no mention of God here. When we come to the end of this chapter, after everything has happened and transpired, Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And, men, uh, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. That's the one side of the argument. But the brothers say the other side of the argument is, should he treat our sister as a harlot? And so that chapter closes with this great problem, these set of problems, these problems that have come about because they have associated themselves so closely and intermingled themselves with the Canaanites, a people that Abraham, their father, said, don't even marry them. Because he knew how wicked they were. When you look at this chapter, you say, well, there, there's a lot of lessons in that chapter. Well, yeah, there probably are a lot of lessons, you know. Um, there's a lesson to parents. Watch out for your children. Watch out for your children. I, I was reminded and, and looked up this uh, passage in Ruth, just two verses I'll read very quickly. And, and Ruth, who ends up under the care and watchful eye of Boaz, Boaz says this to Ruth. Once he has gotten her back to the land, he says, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars that the servants have brought. Now, what I'm suggesting to you is that's the kind of advice Dinah needed. Be with your people. Be with your people. Put your eyes upon their field. Follow after them, and when you're thirsty, drink their water. But here we find Dinah with the daughters of Shechem. And there's no undoing what has been done. And there's no remedy that will really solve that issue. But what is the issue? God has been looking after Jacob all this time. Jacob has been under God's constant care. He has provided for him in every circumstance. Even though Jacob, quite honestly, has been stumbling along. Jacob receives his blessing at a time when he was selfish and immature and really didn't care much about God. And God chose him. God blessed him. God has been with him. God made promises to him. He says, I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll be with you on the way there. I'll be with you on the way back. And I'll protect you at every step of the way. So what is God's response in this calamity? And this mess, which doesn't reflect very well on Jacob, by the way. 
says in chapter 35, Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and live there. Arise and go to Bethel and live there. Go back to where this journey began. Go back to where you found me. Go back to the house of God. Go back to the place of your vow and live there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Go to Bethel. Leave Shechem behind, Jacob. Get away from all of this. Go to Bethel. Build an altar. And worship your God. So what is that going to take? You know, the, the one thing that stands out about this is the steadfastness of God. I don't know about you, but I, I'm grateful that God's love and care and concern and blessings upon me are not always dependent upon me. In fact, at times when Jacob was at his worst, God blessed him the most. Because God was determined not to let Jacob fail. And so the steadfastness of the Lord is one of the great stories of Jacob's life. An imperfect man who is carrying with him a tremendous responsibility. And who fails often and who stumbles, but always seems to be within the reach of God. And so God has come to him again. Arise and go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So we have come all the way back from Genesis chapter 28, him fleeing and arriving at Bethel, now to Genesis chapter 35, reconciled with Esau and trying to find his way back to Bethel. And God gives him this opportunity. But Jacob knows that they must do something. It's like Jacob has now become more mature. Jacob now begins to understand and see, and we're just going to make three very quick points. I don't think I have to elaborate on them or bring in lots of passages. These points are self-evident. And this story tells us what we need to know. Jacob says to his household and to all who were with them, put away the foreign gods which are among you. You remember the idols that Rachel stole from her father's house? They were the seeds of idolatry along with their associations with the Canaanites for idolatry and foreign gods right in their own midst. Jacob says, put away those foreign gods. Put them away. Get rid of them. That's the source of so many of our problems. We have to worship the one true God. Secondly, he says, and purify yourselves. Purify yourselves. Now, perhaps he's referring to a ritual, a ritual purification. And there are lots of examples, a lot of examples of that in the Old Testament. And we could easily look to that subject. But purify yourselves. Look at yourselves and change what you're doing, how you think. Repent of the things that we've done. 
Purify yourselves. And thirdly, he says, and change your garments. I personally believe that a lot of this is very physical. And when he says change your garments here, I don't think he's just speaking metaphorically. I think he's saying, don't dress like them anymore. Don't look like them. When, when his children respond to this, it says, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. So they're gathering these, it's, it's, how do they take their jewelry, take their clothing, it's the way of the Canaanites, get rid of all of that. You know, it's quite a testimony when a people can gather up their gods in a sack and carry them somewhere. And I want you to have that image in your mind as they respond and and they are gathering up their clothing and their jewelry and their idols and they're putting them in a bag or on the back of a, a cart and they're carrying them to Jacob. Everything they had worshipped, thrown into a sack. And we're told that Jacob takes all of these things and he buries them under a tree outside of Shechem. Whole other story there, the Oak of Mamre, it's, it's a lot <laughs> to unpack there. But he buries them, and they head out to Bethel. The application to us is pretty obvious, isn't it? We pitch our tents outside of Shechem. We do business with the city of Shechem and its residents. We let our children mingle with their children. And we are constantly dealing with all the problems that result from that. And we dress like them and we adorn ourselves like them and we take their habits and their pleasures and we make them ours. And what the Lord is calling us to do is live in Bethel. Live in the house of God. Leave their presence. Leave behind the things which take you away from God, the foreign gods and all the forms that they come in. Leave those behind. Put them in a bag and bury them. And purify yourselves and adorn yourself like the children of God. Just want to read one verse as we close. In the New Testament, in Romans, the 12th chapter, Paul wrote to the Roman church, a people living in Shechem. He says to them, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I want to close with this thought. I'm sorry I've gone a little long, but I want to close with this thought for you. 
We live in a world that's changing. We live in a world that is getting uglier by the day. And you and I are the only hope for that world. You and I are it. We carry the gospel. In our mouth and in our actions, we are the light of the world, the salt of the world. And Jesus said, you can't hide the light. And if the salt has lost its ability to preserve, what then? So for our own selves, for our families, for our children, and for the world in its darkness around us, we have to live in Bethel and present to the world the gospel in our lives, in our mouth, in our associations, whatever they are. And I know we can't leave the world. Abraham says, I know what Canaan's like because I'm, I'm living among the Canaanites. We're part of this world. We're not going to be out of this world. But we have to be an influence for good in it. So that's our lesson for today. If you're struggling in your life with the things of this world, the problems of this world, I hope that this lesson has given you something to think about in your own life and encouraged you about the steadfastness of God, that in the middle of everything we deal with, God is there. God is there to protect us to guide us, to deliver us, to bring us home with him. If you're seeking that this morning, I would encourage you to come as we stand waiting to help you and stand and sing.